says, get that India, big boy. Mike Asimo! Call an ambulance! Maybe call a priest! Oh, what a shot! What a shot! Campbell killer! G'day folks, it's 4020, also known as John, back for another episode of a tip sheet. A more traditional episode, we're back to being... Uh, Connected digitally rather than on location after a few weeks at Paraleagues. Joining me as always is 60s. How's it going, mate? Mate, it is going brilliant after last week's win. And uh, what a show we've got coming up today. We're going to be talking a little bit later about the recent Parramatta Leagues Club elections. We'll be talking about a certain re-signing that was great news that was announced yesterday. We've got Bernie Gurr on the show. We've got Joe Grimer on the show. There's still all the buzz carrying over from last week with our live show at Parramatta Leagues. How good was that? The getting to speak with Brett Kenny, man, what a highlight. Um, yeah, so much to get through. Can't wait, mate. All right, Craig, let's kick things off with a, a returning guest that is always an absolute pleasure to have on the tip sheet. Uh, Bernie, mate, it is absolutely awesome to have you back on the tip sheet in 2021. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be back on the Cumberland Throw, boys. That's our pleasure, mate. All right, let's start with an impressive win over one of the major bogey teams for the Parramatta Eels. Uh, what pleased you the most about the victory over the Melbourne Storm on Thursday night? Well, look, it was a terrific win. I know it's only one win, but I mean, you know, Melbourne has been a bogey team for us. They are the premiers. They were near full strength. I'd say they were basically at full strength. Um, sure, they were missing Cameron Smith from last year, but they had Brandon Smith, the Kiwi test hooker in there at, at number nine. Look, it was a great win. Uh, that we showed a lot of patience, and you needed that in the conditions. The conditions were very, very wet, obviously, um, and we showed a lot of grit. And you know, we didn't fade in and out of this game. We were literally mentally uh, dialed in for the full eighty, and that manifests itself in excellent defence. That's your concentration really manifests itself in your defence and uh, ball control. So. I thought our kicking game was good. We got two tries. Two of the three tries came from kicks, not surprisingly in the wet conditions. I thought our long kicking game was simple but effective. And a number of our players really played well. Um, you know, you, you're going to need that. You need a high proportion of your players playing well to beat good teams. So all in all, it was, it was a great win. Um, and those sort of wins build belief and confidence. And that's so important. You know, there's a big difference between teams that go out there hoping to win and teams that believe they will win, particularly when they're playing good teams. So all in all, a very, very good win. Very difficult to be have any criticism about the victory. When when we were constructing the show notes between 60s and myself, I actually said to, to 60s that the result of this game felt like the full realisation of the conversations that we had at the end of 2020 when we were entering the week one of the finals about how you would attack the Melbourne Storm. And it felt like, as well as the Eels played in week one, the finals, and fell short, this year in, in round two, they sort of took everything that was on board and what you outlined and, you know, fully realised it. Well, we were particularly, look, the basis of, of our game is the middle of the field. We, I, I can't remember a game in the last couple of years where we've actually been beaten, you know, been dominated in the middle of the field. Our forward pack is very, very strong. And in this game, you know, Paul Elias, RCG, Nathan Brown, and then later Papali and Kafusi coming on. Uh, Madison was terrific till he got the concussion. His hitting was the best hitting, uh, defensive hitting, contact shoulder hitting I've seen from him in a long while. It was really impressive. And Sean Lane played with an improved energy and involvement. So, you know, we're very strong in the middle of the field. That was the basis of our game. Um, so that was 
terrific. Our forwards were great. And on the back of that, we had good kicking. It was a very different game to the recent playoffs games were played against Melbourne. Every game takes on its own personality. The games were played Melbourne in the playoff games and big games in the last two or three years. They've been on fast, dry tracks. This was not a fast, dry track. It was a, it was a slower, wet track. Having said that, it demanded grit and toughness and patience, and we demonstrated that. So, you know, the conditions, quite frankly, the conditions weren't as suitable for Melbourne as they probably would have liked. They've shown on a fast, dry track, as they have in the past against us in the round one game against South in Melbourne, uh, they love running that those precise attacking formations with excellent ball playing, and they can do that much better on a dry track. But look, you can only go out and do what you can do. So I, th- I think even on a dry track, we'd have been very dominant in the middle of the field. So yeah, the the the, the simple game plan that Brad instituted was perfect. So just but just looking at the team, like from old team perspective, it's only round two, but at this stage. Have you observed anything different as to how the Eels are approaching their uh, their games this year? Well, we've only had two games, and I'm going to say it's one and a half games because I'm trying to forget the first half of the Broncos game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we came out in the second half of the Broncos, and that was on a, a dry track, and we just, we just bored through the middle of the field, and we completely dominated them, and, and then we got some tries off the back of that. And as we've just talked about in this game, this was a this was a you know this was a middle of the field game. When you play on a wet track, the field uh, by definition narrows because you can't play out in the corridors and risk getting pushed over the sliding over the sideline. So the field narrows. It's a narrower field you're playing on uh, in reality. So I don't see anything yet as a change, and, and I don't mind that. I like the power game backed up by good kicking. I think that's the foundation. That's the fundamentals that the Eels need. So. If I look at us now, and I know there's been a lot of talk around two issues in the off-season about how we're going to attack our football this year. Number one was switching the halves and, and back rowers. Mitch and Madison going from right to left, and Dylan and Sean Lane going from right uh, right, right, right to left, and Mitch and Matt are going from right over to the left. So, yeah, the switching of those halves, we've yet to see that given the nature of the games we've seen. That's number one. I don't think there's been any great change there yet. I think it's um, you know, pretty selfless of Mitch to do that and allow Dylan to have the, the more natural right kicking on the right-hand side of the field. The second big thing that was hopefully going to be a bit of an influence around how we attack our football in 2021 was the influence of Andrew Johns on our spine, especially our halves. I haven't seen anything yet around differences in attacking formations and strategies or game management. Now, that's not to say it's not going to come. And with Joey there, I'm sure it will. But I, I think two games, and particularly the style of games and the grounds that the games were played on, I don't think we've got a representative sample yet to evaluate whether our styles change. And quite frankly, we don't want our basic style to change. Boring, powering through the middle, support play, read Marnie, learning the subtleties and craft of dummy half play, which is improving at every game. That's the basis. Now, on the back of that is where hopefully we'll get... Uh, you know, we'll get some attacking strategies and formations that uh, are very effective on the edges after we've had a dominance in the middle of the field. Now, speaking on that first 40 minutes against the Broncos, because you can't ignore it, it is part of the season, and I think it's fair to say that it was diabolical. Um, <laughs> but but by contrast, we then saw three halves of really quality football from the Eels. Um, how do we look at that first 40 minutes of the season for Parramatta? Do you, do you put a, a sort of reflective positive light on it because it sparked 
such a great turnaround or is it still in its own sort of uh, atmosphere of, of negativity? I think Brad addressed it straight away and he said we didn't respect the opposition and that manifested itself in a poor attitude. We didn't come to the game physically and we weren't hitting hard in defence. We weren't running hard with the ball. We weren't getting to our kick and putting it in the right positions on the field. So, look, I think he addressed it straight away. And quite frankly, nothing. there's nothing positive about a lack of intensity in game one of the season. That's that's pure attitude. But, look, Brad addressed it. He knew there was a better, uh, pure attitude within the team. And quite frankly, I'd forget about it. You know, the, the last three halves have been very, very good. And we know what we can do. And the pl- it's just a good reminder for, for our players that when you play teams that aren't perceived to be the better teams, you still just can't turn up and think you're going to roll down the field. You have to commit physically to the contest or you will get beat. And it's a reinforcement of the concept that there is no easy game in the NRL. Even if it's 1v16 any given day, you know, there's a contest there. Absolutely. Now, Bernie, looking now at some individuals in the team, we know you have a high opinion of Murad and Yukore. Was his selection at centre a surprise and how did you rate his game there? Yeah, I must say, I thought I was a little surprised. I thought potentially he might have gone for Blake Ferguson at right centre, where he's played a lot of football in the past for the Raiders and the Roosters and slipped Hayes Dunster onto the right wing. But quite frankly, it was an inspired choice by Brad to play Murata at right centre. He uh, he read defence well. He was brutally physical. The battle with him and Olam was, was like uh, two bulls going at each other. So that was a terrific battle. But he played really well. He, look, he... Murata brings an intensity and a physicality uh, no matter where he's playing on the field for us. The players love playing with him. And I thought he read the defence on the left side quite well. Now, Melbourne weren't as slick as they normally were because of the weather. But, you know, Murata did everything he had to do. And, you know, he, you guys know my opinion of him. I think he's a very much an underrated player, not within internally within the walls of the Eagles. They understand and the players love playing with him and Brad loves coaching him. But externally, outside that, um, you know, if he'd have been playing for some some of these other clubs like the Broncos when they were wrapping all the great young forwards they had, they'd have thought he was a superstar. You know, we know he can be a potential superstar. So it was great to see him come back. And look, he, I'm very comfortable when he's in our top 17. Yeah, it's funny because the air around the stadium when we saw the late Mal come in was a sort of sense of trepidation. It's like, ooh, was that the right move? But obviously it was validated massively. And it'd be interesting to see moving forwards if that was because of the matchup, because Justin Olam is he's a terrific centre, but he is very uh, he, he operates on a very fundamental level of his game. He's like, you know, a north south power centre. He bullies the opposition centre with his strength and his uh, his uh, explosiveness. And as a back row, Marada is more than uh, capable of handling that. So um, he's been uh, rewarded for that. Uh, game against uh, Olam with a selection in the centres again this week. So be very interesting to see how that battle uh, goes out long-term for Murata because he was fantastic in some different Absolutely. conditions. Absolutely. He was great. And I think it, you know that game will give him a lot of confidence playing in that position as well. So, yeah, look, I think it's, it was an inspired choice and it worked really well for us and hopefully it'll continue to do so because, you know, Wonga Blake won't be back for, I'm told, in yeah. four to six weeks. Yeah, with that calf injury. Uh, continuing yeah. with the theme of individual uh, performances, Bernie, did anyone else Sorry, did anyone else catch your eye across that 16-12 victory? Oh, absolutely. I thought, uh, you know, the forward pack was great. Junior and, and, and Campbell Gillard were terrific. Reed Marnie continues, even after two games, you can see it, the improving the incremental improvements in his game around knowing when to run, when to pass, when to kick. Um, Nathan Brown's leg speed and energy were very, very important, I thought, particularly in the first half where where our team was trying to set the tone physically against the Storm. Mike Acevo, um, you know, he, he, 
he got two fantastic tries for us. The second one was unbelievable, so he played well. Obviously, Gutherson was outstanding. Um, you know, but it's sort of it's sort of getting old to talk about. <laughs> Just a casual a three or four try savers on his goal line. You know, no, that, nothing, those, bit, nothing too big. No, those, you know, those try savers, and as, as people have said, you know, try saved as good as a try scored. So, you know, you get one or two of those, and they lead by twelve, and it's a totally different puts a totally different complexion on the match. And I thought I was, one thing I was pleased with. I was really pleased with Sean Lane. I know he he didn't finish last year great, and I'm a huge fan of Sean's. And then he's game one, he was out on that right side instead of the left side, and he, he looked a bit uncomfortable out there. But I thought he was terrific in this game. I was watching his effort on effort areas, particularly after he'd make a tackle and where his energy level was. I thought his energy and commitment were much improved because he's such a good player. And quite frankly, Sean Lane's best footballs in front of him. Um, if he plays with that energy level, he'll continue to be a, a, a real key part of our, of our top 17. Now, just looking ahead, Bernie, um, we've, after coming off such a high-quality game over the storm and obviously getting the, the plaudits that they deserve from that game, this week it's the Sharks. Now, the Sharks are never easy for the Eels, but many punters are going to be expecting that the Eels will win the game. How important is this week's match against the Sharks following up from uh, that win? Well, if you want to be defined as one of the very good teams and a premiership uh, candidate, you have to back up these what I'll call big emotional wins, which this was. It's a big emotional win, as it should be. You have to back it up with another very good performance because that speaks to your attitude, your attention to detail, and particularly your commitment to contact. You know, the first thing I'll be looking for in the first five minutes is are we aggressively going after them with the ball, running hard, and, and without the ball, ripping in and getting our shoulders into the defensive work. If you're committing physically to the contest, they'll be very good signs. I really don't care if it's nil all after 20 minutes if we're physically committing to the contest because that shows that we're mentally and physically there and that, and on the back of that, we can get our kicking game going. Uh, often what happens is team has, teams have really good wins. They come out the next week and they... They don't put the they put the they put the dinner suit on, not the boiler suit. Yeah, and they try and pass their way to victory. Now that's not going to work against the shark. They're particularly gritty. Uh, they showed that the other night against a very good Canberra side. And look, we'll need to physically dominate the middle middle third. So the real the the, the best thing to do coming off a big win is strip it way back and say, guys. Don't think you're going to pass. This is not the pass your way to victory. This is not the time for trick shots. This is the time to get back to basics. Run hard, tackle hard, kick long, chase hard. And if we do that in the first 20 minutes, that'll be the platform for victory. So, you know, it's it's, it's pretty, it's not brain surgery, but you'd be surprised the number of teams that drop their intensity coming off big wins because of their mentality um, and because they, they want an easy night out. Yeah, you almost turned the following week into a trap game by uh, lowering your own standards. So it is very difficult to disagree with anything you said there, Bernie. Um, quality analysis as always. Now this, uh, game, this game will be won and lost on our mentality, which will drive our physical commitment to the collision. If yeah. you see that early and we're hitting hard and we're really into the game physically and on the back of that we've got our kicking game in, in order, we'll give, our we'll give ourselves a chance to win. The Sharks are a good side. They probably should have beaten Canberra. Yeah, they should have. Just uh, some errant goal kicking at the end cost them. And they've proven in the last, you know, four or five years they don't mind playing the Eels. That's just the, the reality. They'll they'll be sitting down there this week and thinking, we can we can go up there and ambush these blokes. Yep. They, that's what they're going to be thinking at Cronulla headquarters this week. Without a doubt. 
All right, so tangentially on the Sharks, I suppose, we'll, we'll switch things to a broader scope on the Premiership itself. Um, are you seeing anything that you didn't expect in 2021, mate? You know, I'm not. You know, people talk about all the rule changes and everything, and look, I'm not really seeing anything that I didn't expect. The top six teams have been identified by most judges. Yep. Um, they're well drilled. The teams are very even, those top six. Um, and it was, if you, quite frankly, if you did it, it all the, if you ranked all the 16 teams and ranked their spine players, the four spine players, one to 10, those top six teams would be pretty dominant in the, in the scoring. Um, because more usually the best teams have the best spines and those top six teams, every one of them has very, very good spines. So from that perspective, no. On the, as far as the game is concerned, um, I think the referees have got a little bit smarter. In 2020, the average what I call referee interferences, which is penalties or six against, where the referees inter- interrupt or in- interrupting or interfering with the flow of game, was 17 per game. Over the first two games, it's about 14 or 13.8 to be exact. What's that tell me? Someone's tapped the referees on the shoulder, and this is a point Phil Gould was making, don't get overzealous on the six against, because technically six against should only be for issues that would have been penalties under the old rules. So I think what that's doing is that's adding the ball in play, though, is very similar to last year. It's about 56 minutes is the ball in play. So it's, it's I'm not seeing a lot. People are saying, oh, it's so much faster than this and that. Look. This may be pedantic, but I think the game is more continuous. I don't necessarily think it's faster when you think about that, if the game is more continuous, more fatigue tends to set in when the game's more continuous. And when you have more fatigue, it's counterintuitive to say the game's faster if, if players are running around more tired. So I think the game is fast enough. I don't want the game, quite frankly, as a, as a lover of the game, I don't want the game any faster. I don't want to get to the point that we did back in the Super League era, back in 1997 with the game. But so fast... The best thing to do was to run from dummy half. Yeah, touch, literal touch football back. in in the rugby league. Yeah. yeah if you, if you, all if you get over fast, you promote dummy half running. Rugby league is all about a fair contest between attack and defence. Now, the interesting thing is the measurement of the speed of the game typically has been the play the ball. Now, the average speed over the first two rounds of the play the ball is three point five five seconds. Very very similar to last year. Number one and number two out of the sixteen games that have been played. Seven and a half teams out of the sixteen have had the better play the ball speed, and 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 uh, won. Which means there's been eight and a half games where the teams with the slower play the ball speed is 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 has won the game. So what I'm saying, what that means is, just because you play the ball faster doesn't, and therefore you, you're technically winning the ruck. Often the differences are very incremental. What it means is you don't always win. It's not always the greatest indicator of winning because only seven and a half teams that had the faster play the ball won out of the 16 games in rounds one and, rounds one and two. Now, that's a little technical, but what it means is the game's more continuous and therefore puts more strain on the players, which by definition then makes your interchange even more important. Um, there's some of the observations I've seen, but it's only been two games, so it's not it's not a statistically representative sample yet. Uh, actually, that's I, I think what you said about the referees with the six again and how they interpret it is really 
it, it hadn't dawned on me that that is the most logical approach that they should be making to it. That they should just be awarding a six again in the context where they might have award, where they would have awarded a penalty in the past, and, and that is the best way that they could possibly interpret um, that call. And last year, Craig, uh, it was very noticeable, and Phil Gould mentioned it a few times, and I, I noticed it as well. They got carried away with the ability to use six agains, thinking, "Oh, we've got to keep this thing moving. I've got to use the new rule." This year, they've tempered it. I like it. Uh, there's only been 14 interruptions from the referees per game, including penalties and six agains. And now that that's good because you know the six again this year is not only including ruck infringements but includes 10 meters. So technically, they could have gone overboard again on the 10 meters, but they haven't as yet. They're only averaging about two six against for 10 metres per game. So <clears throat> I think they've got the balance right, and I hope they keep it that way because I think the footy, even in the wet, was it was terrific. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering whether there might have been a bit of a conversation had after the when the Eels played the Dragons in that trial, there was something like, we received something like 15 or 16 six against, and a lot of those were on the first tackle. And it was probably a major talking point, the six agains out of that trial. So right. I'm wondering if that might have even been a tipping point. Yeah, mate, it, it very well could have been. But I think, you know, at a broader level, it uh, looks like Annesley's given the instruction. I don't, I don't know this, but, but to, to just referee reasonably, if it was, was it going to be a penalty in the old days, it's now a six again, but don't overdo the six agains. Now, I want to get your opinion on one other rule um, that's been introduced this year because it's become my latest bugbear, which is the uh, play the ball restart for when the ball goes into touch. I, I contend that in the past where we would see tries scored off scrums, we will not see a single try scored off a play the ball that now takes place instead of the scrum. Yeah, and I think, look, I... I just at first glance after two games, um, I'm not convinced. I think the jury's out on that one. Um, they typically take the tap instead of the scrum and they take the tap in the middle of the field, typically. Um, yep. they And that, quite frankly, if you, if you start tapping the ball in the middle of the field, you're really playing into the defence's hands because the defensive team's train all week on their, their traditional left-right defences. So if you start from the middle, they're set up the way they train all week. Yeah. Um, so I think the jury's out on that one. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I don't mind the idea of isolating, you know, 12 forwards in the scrum and opening up some real estate for the back. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced that's the right rule, but I'd like to see a few more weeks yet. Well, mate, it's once again, uh, feel so much more informed about the game after our chat with you, especially looking at um, the, the way to approach some of these new rules that that really was a, an eye-opener for me so thanks for joining us again bernie and uh we look forward to catching up with you again throughout the season okay my pleasure boys good to, good to have a chat keep on mate and we'll be in touch soon bye-bye okay so let's dive into the action from thursday night mate uh Parramatta Eels 16 defeating the melbourne storm 12 at Bankwest that even in front of 10,416 wet but very passionate fans um, for the Eels, Mike Acevo getting on for double with Junior Paulo also scoring. Uh, Mitch Moses, two from three from the kicking tee. Uh, and for the Storm, you had Ramus Smith and Justin Olam as try scorers. Ryan Pappenhusen, two from two from the kicking tee. 
So just a quick uh, run through of the team stats. Melbourne dominated possession in this game, 55 to 45%. Uh, as no surprise at time, possession also correlates to a Melbourne Storm favour. Um, they were 33-47 to Eels, 27-39, so over five minutes in advantage in time of possession. Parramatta completed more efficiently at 88%. They're 37-42, whereas Melbourne were 37-47 for a 79% completion rate. Both of which teams, uh, I mean, Bernie touched on this, but both teams should be commended for the phenomenally high completion rate considering the torrid conditions. Uh, Melbourne had more run meters. Um, they had a slightly better uh, play, play the ball speed, sorry. Um, they had a slight edges in terms of discipline. I think they were ahead on penalties and played the ball errors. Yeah, so they were 4-5 on ruck infringements and 3-all in penalties, sorry. Um, and error count was 9-10 to 10 in favour of Melbourne. So it was a very tight game on a stat sheet, barring a couple of the outliers there. But the Eels uh, put together a very well-rounded game plan in order to nullify the reigning premiers. Yeah, it was... When you ran through those stats there, that started to sound like the Melbourne Storm were surely the winners in that game. By but, a considerable margin, even. Yeah, uh, but I think there was a significant stat, which was the kicking metres... And Correct. How, how often would you hear that the Melbourne Storm's kicking game was significantly below that of their opposition? Yeah, um, and that's to the credit, uh, you know, almost single-handedly of Mitchell Moses, who had an outstanding uh, game as the field marshal in that regard. I mean, Dylan Brown contributed. I'm not. Did Reed make any long kicks in that game? I'm trying to. I'm struggling to recall. I think there was one kick into the corner. Yeah, there was there was one kick from Reed. It was a yes, it was a very good touch finder because it was a borderline forty twenty, if I recall. Yes, um, it yes. was on like a forty two on the forty two meter mark that found touch deep. So yeah, it was a combined arms approach there from the the one six and seven. Uh, sorry, the six seven and nine rather. Uh, Guffo was good as he was defensively, didn't contribute to the kicking game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's something that has been a focus over the preseason. It's something that they work the players work on individually as part of the team, as part of their time with Joey Johns. So it's good to see that that aspect of their game has really bore some fruit early in the season. Mm -hmm. and, and the one thing I think looking at the team on a macro perspective is um, they did not play ultra-conservative football on Thursday night. They they attacked the edges fast and downhill. We saw Isaiah Papali'i used as a, a pivot point out in the left edge at times. Um, and they didn't just, you know, they played very strong rock football, but it wasn't literally just bash and barge stuff. They were willing to take their shots when the opportunity presented it. And I think we have to give a lot of credit to Reed Marnie with the way that he engaged the the A and B defenders yes, throughout the game, uh, the the way that he uh, constructed a lot of the play around the rucks. And by that I mean it. The shots were fired when they were able to be fired after the after the defence was put into certain positions on the field, and we saw a little bit of the work around the ruck that they do with uh, Joey Johns in um, in the in the play that was um, executed by Reed Marnie. But I, you know, I can see why he scored in the uh, player ratings because of the work that he can, that he did around the ruck. I still don't see how Gutho missed out on on points. I know it was a it was a tough call, but geez, it, he had a great game. The Dalliams have been in the firing line for the first two weeks of the season uh, after a number of controversial decisions involving both the Parramatta Eels and a broad and wider NRL game. So that's maybe a discussion for another day. But it's certainly 
it leaves a bad taste in the mouth sometimes when you see an effort like Gufferson's not get rewarded uh, with points towards the allegedly most prestigious award in the competition. Yeah, but just to your point about the the work that was done in the Eels' attack, being there at the game, what uh, what really caught my eye was the amount of work that the Eels' attack uh, made the Storm defence do. It, yep. They they had them under a lot of pressure from all points of the field, and it was, and I think that really did take its toll then on the storm attack because they were they were fatigued. Brandon Smith in particular was completely gassed at the 60th minute mark. They completely nullified him throughout the course of that game. And that's significant because the Melbourne Storm against the Eels are traditionally good for one or two cheap barge over tries near the post, whether it's via Brandon Smith or a Sofa Solomona or any of their you know, big bodies in the ruck. And we saw in that game, um, Smith, Solomona and Tui Kamikamika all came desperately close to scoring in such a manner, but the Eels just wanted it more. And they were resilient on their goal line to the point that Melbourne scored uh, one try via Raymond Smith on an absolute uh, flood of possession where there was a couple of contentious calls via a, a missed forward pass and an, I think an obstruction in front of the goalpost that could have been caught against the Storm. And the second try was uh, a complete fluke where it pinballed perfectly from a Pappenhausen kick into Justin Ollum's waiting hands. So the oh, hang on, from a Pappenhausen kick into a Pappenhausen arm. Well, the bice- yes, the outside bicep, which could have been easily a knock-on, but for some reason yeah. was overlooked, yes. Yeah, yeah. so but I, I think that it's a valid point about the that Bernie was making about not being a faster game, but rather it's being a more continuous game, a game of fatigue, uh, more so than the speed of the game. Uh, that, that continuity of play is starting to wear the players out. So if your attack can work over players around the middle and the edge, you're going to be setting yourself up for a good chance of victory in any game. Yes, sir. Um, and, and, and completion, and sorry, I should just say, when you, when you start talking about that, those completion rates that the Eels achieved in the game went a long way to ensuring that um, that that level of fatigue that was there for the Storm. And it it also, uh, conversely, with the Storm's completion rate, it said quite a bit about the uh, levels of fitness of the Eels team that they were able to Absolutely. Uh, defend as they did. Yeah, and, and not coughing up cheap possession and territory against a team as good as Melbourne is one of the fundamental uh, uh, cornerstones towards victory. And seeing it, it's a simple thing, but seeing the Eels execute at such a high level is huge. And the challenge being, like Bernie said, is you now have to maintain the momentum and not cough up in a trap game against the Storm. Uh, sorry, the Sharks, rather. They just play the Storm, you idiot. Um, but, you know, and, and keep things going. But, yeah, this is this is a signature victory, but it is also something that you don't want to slip up on, you know, and that we'll get to that in the preview. But um, for the time being, is there anyone else you want to shout out in this game? Because there, there is a big negative we're going to get to in regards to Ryan Madison's injury. But... On an individual level, I mean, Junior Paulo, Mike Acevo, um, they were both outstanding. Um, we saw Will Smith deployed in a new position at lock forward um, with Brad Arthur rolling with a small ball lineup in the forward pack, and that worked out quite well. Um, who who caught your eye, mate, outside of perhaps the uh, the big stars on the night? Well, mate, I think from as far as I'm concerned, the the fact that it was hard to separate so many players when it came to first of all, discussions about best on field and then trying to think 
was there anyone that didn't uh, complete their assignment on the night? And, and I just can't think of anyone who didn't complete their assignment on the night. Everyone contributed in their way to the victory. So that was probably the biggest take that I had from the game. And I really think that the contribution of Mitch Moses on the night is something that's probably, it's, look, let's face it, he's much maligned and well, people the, are quick this to performance, criticise performances. This but, performance came on the back of a, a slew of flat track bully accusations from the uh, the broader media. And, you know, obviously it wasn't a flashy, you know, five tries this game like Luke Keery, who was obviously an outstanding half in his own right, um, gotten round to. But could there have been a more comprehensive answer to his critics in terms of putting together a, a masterful field marshal, uh, game manager type uh, effort? Well, a wise person said to me through the week, and he was actually speaking about this in relation to Clint Gutherson, and the comment was, when you're assessing who the best on the field is, you ask the question, would the team have been capable of winning without that person on the field? And I would suggest that the Eels would not have won if Mitch Moses was not on the field and not performing as he did on the night. So I have to give him a lot of credit for the victory because beside that last kick that Mike Acevo scored from, just his overall kicking game, the Eels would not have won if we were forced to play without Mitch Moses. Absolutely. All right, let's uh, move on to the unsavoury moment of the night. And it happened uh, somewhere around the three-quarter mark of the game when Ryan Madison copped a rather deliberate elbow to the temple um, from Felice Kafusi. So Kafusi ended up being put on report. Ryan Madison was rubbed out for the rest of the game and will now be out for an unknown amount of weeks, given his history of concussion for the Eels. And uh, we've seen with the Eels in the past, they've copped it. I think it's Michael Jennings... Kane Evans and Mike Acevo have all been put in the sin bin for foul play leading to a head injury assessment for an opposition player in the last two years, and all of which the Eels have copped on the chin because that is how the rule, the rule is written. And yet we've seen multiple occasions now, uh, whether it was actually Ryan Madison against the Eels uh, when he knocked out Daniel Alvaro, and then several other, several other occasions now, including on Thursday night, where an opposition player has committed an act of foul play but has left the Eels a man short because the, the player goes on to fail their concussion test and there's been no further action taken by the referees. And in this case, Felice Cafusi put on report, not sin-binned, and probably more importantly, not sent off, because that was as bad as an act as you're going to see. Um, and now he cops a two-week suspension. And it's drawn the ire of the, the media. I know NRL 360 really tore into the storm about this and Cafusi's and actions. What do we make about this, mate? Because the NRL makes a big song and dance about how important it is in regards to the health of players and concussions. And yet we see actions like this where it's all, it, this obviously isn't an anti-parameter agenda. It's an inconsistency across the wider NRL agenda where they're, they're, they're not policing their rules consistently. It's leading to some teams getting, you know, burnt by it and other teams not, but not, not by any metric or intentional metric rather of like, you know, this is favoring the roosters or favoring the, the storm. Look, I've been up in arms along with, look, along with the, the 10,000 people that were in, in the sitting in the pouring rain at Bankwest Stadium on Thursday night, who all got up out of their seats and roared their disapproval when that action, first of all, when it happened live, then when it was shown on replay, 
there was would have been no doubt in the officials' mind about how we felt on the night and what and what we know that we saw. As you as you mentioned, it's been covered by the media quite extensively since then. There's been plenty of talk from Eel supporters on social media, from all those who were watching at home and, and saw the coverage and the uh, the comments that were made uh, by the commentators on the night. I think probably the part that stands out, that, that gets the ire from the supporters the most is that aspect of consistency. Because in this instance, there was no grey area at all. No, no. There was, it was, there, it was, it was the elbow was cocked and loaded. The trigger was pulled. It came down on the head before the head hit the ground, and then after the head hit the ground. So there was actually, there was actually a um, a movement to strike the head. And then it was compounded once the once Maddow's head hit the ground. You then had that period of time for review because Madison was receiving treatment. So it's not like there was any pressure from a time perspective to make a call or where there wasn't the opportunity, as was the case where uh, Annesley was talking about the shot from uh, Sean Kepi on Adam Reynolds that should have received attention and, uh, you know, potentially time putting on report and even suspension. And he made a, a point about that being something that was missed. Well, Mr. Annesley, this one, as far as I'm concerned, is even worse because the officials concerned had the opportunity yeah. to review had the opportunity to apply the rule that was there for the exact reason, which is the tackle was put on report. Tick. The, the player who was struck has had to leave the field as a result of the tackle. Tick. Where's the, where's yeah. the sin bin? And I and, imagine that the Eels will be asking questions through official channels, but like it, it's just frustrating because, you know, Maddo is now out. And there, there is no recourse that the the NRL can give the Eels long term for what Felice Kafusi did, like they, you know, they're not going to get anything back for the the two or three weeks that Madison is now out. But oh, I'm going to be cynical and say I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen, which is we're going to get the backlash reaction from uh, the league clamping down on such tackles, and I just have a sneaking suspicion that. We will perhaps feel the wrath. Be the, be the first team to to cop a tackle going wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we saw it with yep. the the Crusher crackdown last year, where Murata near Corey. I wouldn't say it was innocuous, but it was a very borderline instance, and he ended up copying a suspension into twenty twenty one. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a, well, it's call, a me, call me cynical, mate. I just I just every time it feels like, and there's probably supporters for other clubs who feel exactly the same way. But it always seems to me that when there's when there's this knee-jerk crackdown that happens every year where something's gone wrong in a particular round, ah, uh, we better fix that. So for a period of about four or five weeks, there's a crackdown on it. And somewhere in there, there's going to be an Eels player who, who cops the brunt of it. And I'm just thinking... This is going to just be history revisited at some stage. And as you say, uh, look, in one respect, I'm actually happy that the Storm finished with 13 players because it added no, merit no to the No excuses win. for... 
um, yeah. and to be able to say, oh, you know, Yannick beat us because of a, and you know, quote unquote, dodgy uh, sim beating or send off when there was obviously nothing dodgy about it. But yeah, Melbourne Storm, uh, essentially full strength. Obviously, they were missing uh, uh, Dale Finucan and the hooker Harry Grant. But when you've got the incumbent New Zealand number nine as your uh, backup hooker, that's not exactly a, a a terrible option to have there. And for the Eels, uh, before kickoff, we found out that Wanga Blake was out for at least four to six weeks. And um, that was compounded by the fact that you haven't got Bryce Cartwright and a number of other Eels like uh, uh, sorry, Ray Stone. Ray Stone who is now available in round three, but wasn't available for round two um, uh, in the mix, or not in the mix, rather, um, for that week. So both teams were ostensibly full strength or close enough to that it was, um, you know, a, a game with huge stakes um, and not many excuses to be played. So big one for the Eels to win. And the other thing worth mentioning was a milestone game for the Storm. Jesse Bromwich, 250th game for the Melbourne franchise. So... For a team that is renowned to get up for those milestone games, the Eels did very well to produce a 16-12 victory. Um, yeah, and, and look, just the last thing I want to say about that Kafusi incident is that the I think supporters across the NRL have a right to be concerned about an incident like that because you had officials like Ashley Klein and I... I don't mean to single him out here because referees have a tough job. They're getting all these rules that are thrown at them every year. Uh, it's it's hard enough. We complain as spectators about the uh, the game constantly changing. I wouldn't like to be a referee in the game where the game's rules are constantly changing and they're having to uh, interpret or manage the rules or whatever term you want to use about what they have to do with the game. However... In the, as I, I have to go back to it, this was not a tough call and Ashley Klein is regarded as one of the leading referees in the game and in what really, as far as I was concerned, was a black and white call. He couldn't make it. It highlighted the inconsistency in yep. the application yep. of yep. what is a significant rule. And uh, I agree with Paul Kent with what he said about the, there are concerns about the NRLs, uh, the the way that they punish certain uh, decisions, the way certain rules are structured, that we've got, there's so many things, and to use a phrase, I'm going to have to say, that it's us about where there are higher levels of, uh, of suspensions that are dished out for um, tackles that compared to that one are, are quite innocuous. And you, you use the Murata Nucore incident as for an innocuous crusher tackle that resulted in a multi-week suspension that carried forward into the next year man that the seeing the head of players attacked i mean attack not not an accidental collision but attacked over the weekend that is where the priority has to lie for the for the rugby Without league, and I think all supporters and players themselves would have to agree with that. I concur 100%, mate. So that puts the uh, un- rather negative ribbon, I suppose, on an otherwise overwhelmingly positive night where the Eels 16 defeated the Melbourne Storm 12. Um, it, bump- it bumped the Eels up to... Uh, excuse me, my microphone was just a little bit out of sync there. It bumps the Eels up to uh, fifth on the ladder now, where they came into the round seventh. So baby steps despite the big win, but that's the nature of having you know just a couple of rounds completed. The Eels for and against after two smaller scale victories means that they're not um, up there if the 
the likes of the Roosters and Panthers who thrashed their first two um, opponents across the first two weeks of, uh, of the NRL. Bit of a mouthful there. But yeah, um, it's it sets the table for a big early season push for Parramatta. And that's something we spoke about at length during the preseason about getting off to a strong start in the 2021 campaign. So very well done from Brad Arthur and his boys and looking forward to how they handle the coming weeks where there is an opportunity to go on a, a very big run. Well, just in the context of the season, if you looked at the draw and you circle games like the Melbourne Storm as uh, major events during the year, if you come away from a, a game against the Storm with two points, that's really something that's gone into your bank that a lot of clubs aren't going to be able to add themselves. So um, that's probably where we start to talk about how important this week's game against the Sharks is because... Yes, they're going to get a tough game, but it's a game that they probably are, are thinking, if we do what we're supposed to do, we get, we take this game. Yeah, and it's so. not that they wouldn't think that about the Storm, but there is there is the reality that the Storm have such a winning percentage of all other teams, to the extent that I think Parramatta had scored something like 14 wins out of 40 games, 14 wins and a draw out of 40 games against the Storm. And I think that place had us placed before, this is before last Thursday, in the top six clubs in the record against the Storm. <laughs> wow. Oh, we did we did talk about this on the live show, and I think the Bulldogs had the best record, surprisingly, against Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Eels were pretty much on par off the likes of the Sydney Roosters, and I think it was Manly, you said, when they were at their peak? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and I think the Bulldogs record is something like about a 50-50 record, something approaching that. So any, so, any win, especially yeah, one of the, the type or the ilk that we saw on Thursday, is huge. Yes, exactly, exactly. All right, well, it was meant to be a busy weekend of football action for the Eels from uh, the lowest grade through to the NRL. So um, let's power through the results, or rather the lack of results, after a, a torrid uh, week of weather, saw the... Uh, postponement or abandonment of pretty much every grade outside of the NRL. Um, it was meant to be a triple header out at points bet stadium for the Eels against the Cronulla Sharks in the Harold Matthews, SG Ball and Tasha Gale. That has now been rescheduled. And we're, we're a little bit in the in the dark here because it was an issue reported to us by Joey Grimer that it would be rescheduled in a, a new week 10. So they bump back all the finals by a week because there's only uh, three weeks of finals the quarters, the semis, and the actual grand final itself in the top six system. But there was also reports that came out after that it would be, a, as crazy as it is, a Saturday-Sunday double header for all the teams involved, which blows my mind because that feels like it's a, a lack of duty of care, but what would I know? Um, I so think in the uh, in the latest draw that I saw on uh, the New South Wales Rugby League, it was going with what uh, Joey first reported to us. But Which I hope course, it is. Well, well, we've got Joey joining us uh, shortly. So we'll so try to get we'll, confirmation we'll get an update from him yes, on that, in that regard. And um, so that, that was the junior reps done and dusted. And then following that, there was meant to be the first round for the Eels in both the Jersey flag and the New South Wales Cup after a round one bye. Um, and this, these games were initially meant to be played at Ringrose Park, but on the same day, on Thursday, when we did the live show ahead of the Round 2 NRL game, um, it was revealed to us that these games have been rescheduled to McCready Park out at Guildford Leagues. And then that was quickly, uh, or quickly on the game day itself, early in the morning they were called off because of um, the conditions being far too detrimental to the field itself. So we now have gone two weeks without the Eels playing in either grade in Flag and New South Wales Cup. So the boys will be chomping at the bit to get their first action of 2021 when they um, play 
in round three? Uh, it's it feels like forever. It must feel like forever for some of the players since they last played a, a, an actual game of football. So, and uh, and I don't know how their training may or may not have been disrupted over this period of time. Uh, again, that that can be a question we'll ask of Joey. Good. Good call. And the last thing before we do move on to our chat with Joey is um, the Eels posted their injury update for round three. Um, there's been some adjusted timelines for certain players. Michael Oldfield is still uh, scheduled to be round five or six of that MCL knee injury. Wonga Blake is listed as TBA for calf injury. Brad Arthur did say in the post-match presser against the Storm that it's expected to be a four to six week timeline. However, we do know, given what Mitch Moses went through in 2020, that calves can be a rather tricky injury that lingers with um certain um, secondary effects. So we hope Wonga makes a speedy recovery, but they're not going to rush him back, no doubt. And um, in the same injury report, Ryan Madison is listed as TBA for concussion, which is completely understandable because his history of concussions is nothing to joke about. Um, we saw last year the Eels uh, took no risks by giving him a two-week hol- oh, I say holiday, that you know, sounds horrible, a two-week break um, following the concussion he sustained on a Luciano Le Lua um, uh, run that he, he had the tackle on the goal line. So, yeah, we wish Maddo a speedy recovery in that regard, but they're not going to take any risks with him. Um, the good news there is that uh, Ray Stone, as we mentioned earlier, is off the injury report and is eligible for selection in round three. Uh, and joining TCT for another weekly installment of uh, Insider Content is Joey Grimer. Uh, Joey, always a blessing to have you on our show, mate. How you doing? Hey, guys. Great to be here again. I think it's week four. So um, what a wonderful week it was last week. And let's hope we can continue in our merry ways for week five, man. Thanks yeah, for having me on. It's been a few weeks of uh, face-to-face come contact with you for the show, but now we're back to the old uh, digital formats on the phone. So a bit of a mix-up for us this week. Yeah, I prefer the face-to-face, especially at my old stomping ground at the Parramatta Leash Club. Um, and oh, I must good, say... How good were you, mate? How good were you live? It was on fire. It was killing it. Oh, look, I don't know if it was me. I think um, uh, the bloke that came in after me, uh, you might recognise him, Brett Kenny. I thought he was outstanding. And um, some of the things that he spoke about and just the engagement from the staff, uh, from the um, um, supporters there and the people um, that were uh, eating a meal or drinking a beer uh, was, was excellent. I was really, really happy with the turnout. It was a massive event. So congratulations to you guys. Um, and to Mary Kay, obviously, as well. What a wonderful, wonderful Thursday. Or start to a wonderful Thursday evening, man. Thanks, Joey. Yeah, yeah. cheers, mate. All right, let, let's get into all the action from uh, last week. And I say get into it. There wasn't much because <laughs> as you broke on the show itself, um, all games were postponed last week in the junior reps. And that actually ended up stretching out to both flag and cup. So um, do we have any updates about how, in, in especially in your area of um, expertise, where those games will be rescheduled to? Yeah, we do, Forty. Um, with the um, jersey flag and the um, um, the knock-on effect cup, um, the reserve grade system, they've actually got a, a lot of buys throughout their season because of the low numbers of participants. So they'll be rescheduled into those uh, where, it would have been, where, where it would have been a buy. Um, I think the flag have uh, four buys, so um, obviously that'll be really easy to fit in. Now, with the um, um, the Harold Matthews, the uh, Tasha Gale program and the SG Ball, what they've done, because of um, the closeness of the ladder, um, with particularly the Matson Ball, and equally so, the Tasha Gale, 
they didn't want to cancel the round because the, that would have significant um, um, uh, outcomes on the teams of making or not making the top six. So what they've decided to do, and I say New South Wales Rugby League, that is, they've um, added a, a, an extra round. So as it were, it was a nine-week round. Now they're going to continue to play the nine rounds, but the washed-out game will subsequently be the uh, a, a pseudo round 10, if you like, and then push the finals and grand final back one So the, the common sense solution, because I did hear you – you spoke to us on Thursday saying that was the most likely outcome, but there was a little bit of chatter after that. It might have been a, a round nine double header over Saturday and Sunday, which would have felt like not to the utmost welfare of the young players in the competitions. I think I think that would be a real difficult one, particularly in the SG Ball um, 40s, because we've got teams like Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, Canberra, Newcastle, and things that teams that have to travel. For, so, from a welfare perspective, um, it starts to ring bells, and from a logistical um, um, uh, you know, situation. It's certainly very, very difficult to arrange, particularly you know, with in the next two or three weeks, yeah. mate. So New South Wales made their decision. Um, it's not a a, a huge um, effect on the normal run of the competition, and it means that everyone is still given the opportunity um, on their own merits if they're good enough to make the top six or not make the top six. So, Matt, the um, weather just didn't mess up the games. It really, the messing up started out in the playing fields. And we even saw where the first session this week for the Eels NRL was at the synthetic fields out at uh, the Ponds. Has there been any adjustments that you've had to make to the training arrangements for the uh, junior programs this week? Yeah, there had 60s. Um, unfortunately, uh, our training venue at Maris, like every other ground in suburban or New South Wales or the east coast of Australia uh, was closed. Uh, we're pretty fortunate, guys, that at Parramatta Maris, our training hub, um, we have access to a double um, a timbered floorball, a double timbered basketball centre, um, which is fully covered. So whilst we couldn't get out on the field, it's quite big enough where you can do skills and drills and activities um, and it's not weather affected. So we've missed the Monday and Tuesday session. The, the match and the ball um, couldn't do a field session on Monday. Um, so they did their weight session or their gym session and went down and done some activities in the indoor uh, training facility, equally the Tasha Gale girls. Now, we've been told that the uh, grounds will be open for a certain part from the 30-metre line to the 30-metre line. So we'll be able to get some uh, football-specific activities in tonight. And, uh, we're, you know, we're hoping that it's going to clear up by Friday, which will allow us to get our um, game day prep and our captains run in for all the three programs. Now, I, can... I, I would imagine – sorry. Uh, That's all right. Just a, a question on that. <clears throat> um, I would have imagined that the uh, logistics – were going to be, well, maybe the the schedule of the training and what was actually done, whether that would have changed a bit with the uh, washout in terms of the kilometres that are in the legs of the players. They they missed out on that on the weekend. Now they're um, missing out on uh, the a true field session as such. Is is that likely to impact? how they perform or are you happy with the condition that the players are in at this stage of the year? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, mate. Um, 
the the Monday, which would normally be a recovery um, review session and so forth, because of the games not taking place over the weekend, it would have been a top-up conditioning day. So, yes, uh, the, the, by us not playing games or by a team not playing games would alter your training program. We had every... Um, Every intention to make it a um, um, a high a high running day um, on the Monday in return for preparation for the Roosters this week. Uh, now, Joey, I can think of at least one grade where this question might ring true. But um, was there any real benefit to the postponement for your teams? Um, yes and no. We had we have got some players that were on the fringe of playing and not playing, as it were, particularly in the SG ball, at, at, at SG ball level, um, the players that were 50-50 won't make it this week anyway. So it didn't really give anyone an advantage. The Harold Matthews um, uh, get one player back, um, but the Tasha Gale, they probably needed a bit of a rest because they've been bashed up uh, the last couple of weeks. And Ryan Walker and his staff, can barely put uh, 17 players on the on the footy field. So whilst it's, you know, not the best, but everyone's in the same boat. And uh, it gives us some advantages, but not, not hugely 40s. Uh, we would have liked to play, particularly with the momentum we're gathering on the back of the Canberra Raiders travel away. And when you're winning, you want to keep on playing. Um, so, yeah, it would have been nice to play, but everyone's in the same boat, except... Victoria and Penrith, there was only one game over the weekend, obviously played in Victoria or Melbourne, so that was the only game played in the SG ball. Now, all three Greys are at home this week against the Roosters, including the Roosters Indigenous Academy and Natasha Gale. What can you tell us about the Eels' opponents this week? It's a really, really exciting weekend. Uh, both teams in the Matson ball are both in the top six. So we're talking about two quality teams in the Harold Matthews, uh, second versus third, and you're talking about um, two quality teams in the SG ball. Uh, Roosters are currently uh, third, and we're sitting in equal fourth but on fifth spot. So there's going to be a, a real opportunity to see where both teams are at. With our Tasha Gale ladies, um, this is their grand final. This is their third grand final in a row since the Bulldogs win, since the buy, uh, the draw against Canberra Raiders. Um, we need to win or we need to gain three points uh, plus the buy to be successful in the top six. So, again, this is the third week in a row for the girls that it's going to be their grand final. But I can tell you characterically that the, um, the Harold Matthews and SG ball game they're two, two top six teams. So um, it's going to be real high quality and it's going to be played in a, a level where we're going to be pretty fresh given that uh, both teams didn't play a game on the weekend, boys. Thanks, Joey. Now let's move away from the junior reps and have a look at the jersey flag. Um, like the New South Wales Cup, it's been a long time since they've played their preseason trials. They had a round one bye followed by last week's washout. So we're hoping they get their first match this week. Um, they've been shifted from Bankwest to Guildford, unfortunately, so we've gone, yep. gone away from the triple header because of um, a bit of duty of care for the ground out at Bankwest. Um, is it going to be a challenge for them to find their groove after missing all that time from the trials to the actual first game of their season? I think the easy answer is yes. 
Uh, you can only do so much training um, or opposed that doesn't simulate quite close to actually playing. And to have a broken um, um, trial period and then have a buy round one um, wash to they're, they're essentially uh, their trial form or the momentum they would have received or got in the trial game sort of is subside now. Um, so, yes, the easy answer is yes. The teams that they're playing have already got a, a game under their belt. Um, so, you know, they, they're going to go out there and obviously do their best, but they're going to be, I would imagine, a little bit scratchy, a little bit disjointed perhaps because they've got no consistency against um, opposition in the 13v13 type of activities. It's they're, they're, I find they're an interesting team to try to get a handle on at this early stage, Joey, because we've only seen a little bit of exposed form in the trials, and we know that those trials have been a bit of a, a mix and match as far as the team's concerned. But I look at them as individual players, and there's a lot of individual players that I really like that are in that uh, Jersey flag team. Uh, the trials, the results didn't uh, go too favourably. Um, what what do you think we can look forward to with the Jersey flag this year? I think they're in a really difficult uh, transition period, 60s, the, the Jersey Fleck team. Um, as we all know, there are um, 11 eligible Jersey Fleck players in our full-time squad that were potentially playing um, um, the reserve grade, the knock-on effect cup. Um, we've got some really, really uh, blessed and dynamic players in our SG ball program. Um, which would be of the standard of Jersey Fleck, but we've decided to play SG Ball for the remaining of the season. So you talk about some of our uh, better players of that age group not playing, which gives the opportunity for some other players that wouldn't have uh, been selected given those players were available. So it's an opportunity for them to stand up. And I like the word that you used, individual, because... That's probably the reason why they weren't successful in the trial games. Their um, individual efforts and systems were okay, but collectively as a group, if you don't get that right, doesn't matter what age group or what competition you're playing in, you're going to be on the wrong side of the scoreboard. And I know that's what Dean Feeney and his staff were critical to the players about, um, understanding what their role is for the team, not for themselves. So um, we would like to think that the players on the back of their last trial game uh, and with their training two weeks post that um, may have rectified or gone a long way to rectify and following the coach's uh, instructions, mate. Yeah, it would have been an interesting uh, lineup if they'd pl played all the eligible uh, under-21s players in the Jersey flag and you'd seen the, the likes of Will Penasini and Sean Russell and... Um... Jake Arthur and uh, uh, Dave Matthew Komoloffi and Josh Tatupolo and um, Caleb Toey. And, well, they could have all played SG Ball. Um, so yeah. it could have been an interesting SG Ball. <laughs> there could have been some stacked that, ball and flag lineups, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and that, that, that just gives you a, a snapshot of the amazing job that uh, Craig and his staff are doing. Not only are they missing their, you know, their better um, eight or nine players, that would be starting in that side. He's also uh, identified four players that have come out of our junior league that have never played in a, a junior rep program. 
which he's brought up to speed in a short period of time to capture, you know, the winning um, the winning traits and why we're doing so successful. So um, all the staff there are doing a wonderful job. And I, I suppose it's testimony to the um, uh, policy of promoting the younger players up to the grade level that we believe that they are uh, quite capable of playing at because it then provides that opportunity for players uh, further back down in the um, in the the age football. Oh, I couldn't agree more, and that was my decision. And I had to float that to uh, general manager and and pass on why I think that's the right way to go. Because at the end of the day, men, um, China uh, success isn't always measured by the amount of China in the cabinet. At the end of the day, we're looking to create first graders, which help our cap, which help our culture, which helps the whole dynamic of our club. Um, where we could have settled for being very, very successful in the the mats and ball, but we can achieve both if we do both systems well, and that's where I think we're we're at at the moment. It's taken us two or three years to get here. Uh, we've had our first wave of players come through, um, the, the Dylan Browns, the Stefano Uticamonos, the, the Oregon Cafusis, the Hayes Dunsters, the Ethan um, Parries and uh, William Keys and those type of players, the Mick Durys, although a lot of those kids are no longer at our club, you know, we've done a lot. We, we got seven of those kids up to the standard where they could train full time. Now we've got the second wave coming through and we mentioned um, eight or nine of those players uh, not more than a minute ago. And then um, I've got a, we've got another wave coming through, a group of 15 and 16-year-olds. So we can achieve both uh, agendas with promoting from within as well as being successful in our junior rep programs. It's taken us two or three years to get here. Um, we're, you know, still three or four years behind Penrith when they started, but ultimately they've got the blueprint for what every club um, desires because it just means that, um, as I said to you, we've got kids in our own backyard that want to play for their junior club. It saves you your cap. Um, Brad Arthur, the head coach, knows um, that they're going to transition upwards because the way that the first grade of training, we have the same idiosyncrasies and consistencies and continuities as we do in our under-14s development squads. So it's a, it's a win-win for everyone, man. Now, you, you're just touching on um, the uh, NRL squad. So let's, let's – I want to put a feather in your cap here, mate, because we want to talk about last week's NRL match and your predictions or your um, – your strategies that you suggested the Eels could use to beat the Storm, and you absolutely nailed it. Can you just remind our listeners about the areas that you identified last week? <laughs> Thanks, mate. Sometimes I do get it right. Sometimes I, I, I um, uh, remind myself that, you know what, I might know what I'm doing, but sometimes there's a bit of flukiness too. So um, if I can recap, and I really appreciate you giving me that little bit of a wrap, but if I can recap, I, I just felt that um, um, given the circumstances of uh, the venue, the, the environment, the conditions, um, the last play options, our kicking was going to be the most important facet of our game. And not only that, but the chase and uh, the, the, the ability to turn the ball over on our terms, and I say ours, Parramatta, and that's what we did impressively well on the weekend. Our kick 
percentage was through the roof, higher than it's ever been um, since I've been at this club. And that's a testament to, you know, Mitch, uh, um, Dylan Brown and, and Reid Marnie jumped out of dummy half and kicked two screamers. Um, and that was the main emphasis of, of what we spoke about. I also suggested that we could have some joy, even though I love him to death, uh, on Jenko's edge, um, which ultimately, um, previously, the week previously, there was some disjointness, if that's the, if that's a correct word. I thought we'd have some value if we went there with the ball, um, both through the hands and high. And we had we know the success we've had um, when we went to that edge and, and we've seen two amazing tries by um, Sivo and we had a lot of luck when we went down that edge. So uh, really impressed with that. And probably the third thing we spoke about is um, uh, reasonably generic. And if you ask any person that uh, follows rugby league, they'll say uh, possession is key. So our completion rates... Um, and I think they were the, you know, uh, one of the highest that we've had over the past two seasons. So those three areas, uh, we ticked all three boxes. And you have to against a team like Melbourne, um, which, you know, congratulations to Brad and the staff and to the players, their energy and their effort areas uh, on top of those three key indicators were second to none. And it, it's uh, really key that you talked about that kicking game because. When we went through the match stats, a lot of the match stats were uh, like uh, possession and those sorts of and, and meters run were all favoring the storm. And then when you got to the kick meters, there's a significant advantage that was uh, held by the Eels in that game. And that really was telling in the uh, end result. Yeah, and, and it showed in the stats. I don't think there was a, um, a low finish on any of the kicks. So the, the execution of the kicks were high uh, and the kick selection were the highest it's ever been at our joint at Parramatta. So not only the kicks, um, the right kicks, uh, the execution was fantastic, but everyone was on board, 60s. The kick chase, um, their ability to create one line, especially when you're facing arguably three of the, um, you know, the, the greatest back three in our game, you have to because if you let them get through or a sniff, it just compounds you in defence and you're just playing touch footy and going backwards. Uh, I was originally going to ask you what pleased you most about the win, but you sort of laid it out on three different key segments as to what was the real impressive parts of our victory. So one thing I, I was going to then ask you instead was when we spoke to you on Thursday night, you talked about how you sort of internally rate kicks. Like the, yep. you, know, you have a, a high-low rating and, and you, you obviously want to be trying to max out your high rating. How does a kick like the the one that Mike Acevo scored the game when he try on? How do you rate that on internal metrics? Okay, there's there's two things um, from the area where the ball was played. Was it the right kick selection? And the the answer was yes, five out of five. Now, um, it was the right kick selection, um, and that's only half of the uh, uh, information that we're recording or the information we want to share with those kickers or the team. The other part, and probably more important, because you, you can actually um, um, you can actually get a low kick selection, but get a high 
execution yeah, because I, I can of see what you're saying. Fact, yeah, right. yeah. Sometimes a kick is not the right kick, but you still get benefits from it because of the um, kick chase forties or you know the something else happening. But the two areas of metrics or measurement that we do is is it the right kick from the right place of the play of the ball, and that was a ten out of or five out of five, and was the execution fine. Do you remember where the kick landed? He kicked it from, kick he kicked him from about? about 45 out roughly. Yep. And I feel yep. like it must have dropped, was it 12 to 15 maybe? Yeah, I think it was more 15. See, ideally, we'd like it closer to the try line. So maybe he would have got a, a three or four out of five, but would have got a massive uh, compliment, um, even though he mightn't have got a five out of five for the execution of the kick. But... What do we learn in under sixes? The kick is only as good as it's as it's chase. And, and Micah got in his bike for that chase. I tell you what, he absolutely floored it down the field. So um, that that's the area. So it's the kick selection and the execution. Thanks, that mate. No problems. Well, mate, uh, this has been a, a, a even though we didn't have any junior reps to talk about in terms of the uh, review. I think we've uh, we've certainly covered. Uh, plenty in our chat again this week. So uh, thanks for that. And um, uh, we're going to get a win against the Sharks this week? Yeah, it's a dangerous game. Um, obviously, watched all the games on the weekend. I watched that one with, with uh, great anticipation. I thought they were really unlucky, not because Chad Townsend missed those goals. And you know what? I've coached Chad. I know Chad quite well, and I, I really feel for him. Um, I, I still think they could have won the game, even without those kicks. And the way they fought back... Um, was really, really surprised, and it's a danger game. The one thing I like about um, what the Sharks are doing, John Morris is doing a fantastic job with those those young men. There's a couple of uh, mature senior players in that squad, but I'm really loving what their back three are doing. Um, they're jumping around. They've got plenty of ed- energy. Uh, Kennedy, you don't know what he's going to do. It's, uh, you know, David Peachy, um, Mark Two out there at the moment. So they're, they're a youthful um, side that throw plenty at you. They have a lot of belief, but they do have the sprinkling of um, senior players in their squad. Um, they've got a, a really good kicking game. Um, they defend the rucks quite well. Um, and their left edge with Graham is very, very potent yeah, against our right edge. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, it's a danger game. In fact, you know what? It could be a little bit more worrying than, you know, the week before Melbourne last week. It's a really, really uh, big game for us to get three in a row. I don't know when we've done it last, but we may have done it last year. But to get Brisbane at Brisbane when traditionally we're not the best travellers, um, to get Melbourne, hopefully we got the monkey off our back there, and to take on a side that would be very disappointing and hurting like Cronulla, three really good oppositions in difficult circumstances, would be a massive, massive um, weight off our shoulders. And fair play to Brad and his staff because they're doing a tremendous job in, in all areas of you know coaching and so forth. Thanks for that, Joey. And we'll check in with you next week, mate, after that absolutely uh, massive Saturday of football with uh, the triple header at New Era, followed by the flag out at um, McCready and then the uh, double header at Bank West, mate. Yeah, I love love chatting to you guys. Congratulations on that packed house at Paraleagues last week. And 
I love Brett Kenny and just appreciate what you guys are doing for, you know, our juniors and, and you know, a little bit of educational stuff to uh, what we do in our junior space. Well, in terms of the education, mate, we couldn't do it without you and we always love having you on the show. Keep well, Joey. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Cheers, mate. Alrighty, it's another turbocharged Saturday or supercharged Saturday, super Saturday, mega Saturday, I don't know what you want to call it. It's um, all the grades lined up on the one day um, across three different venues, and we're going to be out for most of the action, mate. Um, but I'm not oh, sure. Yeah, how, what, what a day! It sort of, it, it almost feels like the day when there was the trial at up at Penrith and had to go out to Cabramatta first and yep. then get up to Penrith Park. It's um, it's not too dissimilar except the uh. The, the second leg of the journey is not quite as as far as Penrith. Yeah, and we, we can say with a great certainty certainty that uh, TCT will be live blogging the junior reps, the reserve grade New South Wales Cup game, and obviously not the NRL game because that's broadcast across uh, multiple different uh, formats. But um, you're going to get at least four games of coverage out of TCT. It's up in the air whether we can get out to the Jersey flag because it's at a different venue, but we will see what happens logistically. Alrighty, let's get into it, because it starts off very early, 9.30am, out at New Era Stadium. Um, the Harold Matthews do lead the ticket um, up against the Sydney Roosters. Um, for the Harold Matthews, it is a relatively unchanged lineup from the team that was meant to take to, uh, to the field against the Sharks last week. Um, Patrick Spence at fullback, Suliasi Aho and Josh Lialotto on the wings. Charlie Geimer and Declan Murray round out a full-strength backline. Terence Lafay and Ethan Sanders are your regular starters in the halves. In the front row, you've got Sam Tuavadi and Orfag Mino alongside Yaya Ayachi at hooker. And the back row has Raf the Stratus ahead of his twin brother Dom, who's on the bench. And in the starting back row alongside Raf is Saxon Pryke and Miles Martin. Uh, bench reads is Blaise Talangi, Joshua Alzahim, Jacob John, and the aforementioned Dom the Stratus. Mavete um, Ota Ota is the 18th man. And um, this is a big game. This is third v fourth on the ladder, um, with both teams looking to have a crack at the top two, because I think that uh, it's the, sorry, if I just quickly grab the ladder, it's, uh, yeah, Panthers versus Seagulls, uh, and I think the Seagulls are very catchable this week because their for and against is um, right thereabouts with the Eels and the Roosters. Yeah, very big game because with the way that the finals are structured, it's a top six where the first placed, uh, first two placed teams Correct. get the buy. Uh, get, they get the buy in the first week of the finals. They go directly through to the grand final qualifier. So they are only required, after the regular season's finished, they only require one win to get them into the grand final. Then again, the other way of looking at that is uh, every team gets only one chance. Yeah, there's... Exactly, exactly. They, they, as soon as you lose a game in the final series under this you're format, you're gone. One and done, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that takes us to the second game of the day, and it'll be the SG Ball who play the, uh, the mid-game... Uh, slot and they'll be kicking off at 11 a.m. again against the Sydney Roosters. Um, this is a a good thing for the the SG Ball the week off. Rather, um, they came out of a massive game, a massive upset against the undefeated uh, Canberra Raiders two weeks ago, very battered. Um, and if you were listening to the podcast, you would have known that the um, the boys were down to no bench with 25 minutes left to play and spent the last seven minutes of the game playing with 12 fit players on the field. So they've obviously been in the war out of that game. And the week off with the pseudo-buy, thanks to the uh, wet weather, means that they get a lot of troops back that otherwise wouldn't have had available. So um, for them... Oh, sorry, 60s, you were going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that um, I'd almost equate this match as being similar to the NRL team um, that what they 
are looking at this week. So in the NRL, you've got the Eels coming off a big win against the Storm and then uh, playing a game against a team, not still a good team, just as the Sharks, Sharks are a good team. Um, but they're, maybe they're expected to win. They're, they're coming off, but they're coming off an emotional high. Now, the SG ball are coming off probably the biggest of emotional highs. You mentioned the circumstances of the win. And, of course, it should be mentioned that the Raiders were at the top of the table at that stage and undefeated. So the Eels then have to... It was almost like their grand final that week. And it probably in terms of the intensity that they played at, the fortitude that they showed to get the victory, now's the big call because they have to back it up against a team who is... Uh, a I think they're sitting around similar points. Uh, to so the... Eels six play the Roosters fourth. So there's plenty on the yes. line in this game as the Eels look to win out the finish of season and just climb higher and higher on the ladder. Yeah, and this because the, the Eels continue to walk the precipice of the top six, it is a critical game for them. If they, if they get this, it goes a long way towards uh, ensuring that they do play finals football. If they lose... Uh, it's gee, they put themselves in a tough position, and it's this is the this is how uh, critical this game is to be able to back up such a, a, an important win against the Raiders. And the Eels aren't quite full strength in Ashley Ball yet because I think they're missing the likes of Tyrone Sow and maybe a couple other uh, good players, but they are fielding a very strong team. Uh, Joshua Tupelodo will be the fullback in his uh, second week of the team after being in the full time preseason training. On the wings, you've got Caleb Coronios and uh, Freeman Forsyth. The centres are Kamoe Fekatoa and Jabril Kalache. In the halves, it's the full strength of the Eels with Josh Chappell and Keelan Bray in the six and seven, respectively. Um, the four-pack is looking very good this week. Uh, Jonte Jr. Beffen Mieser is in the number eight with Larry Mwagu Tatia in the number 10. Uh, at hooker is Vlado Jankovic. In the back row, it's Jock Brazel, Maximus Tupo, and the inspirational captain Peter Tatia. And on yeah, the, that's a strong pack, mate. Yeah, that's very a, strong pack, and it gets even better on the bench too because there's a couple of um, big boppers that'll bring plenty of juice from the interchange. Um, you've got Drew Lloyd as the utility hooker in number 14, Francis Fayofo Tuatino as the utility sort of back row or centre, and then uh, two big boppers in Taylor Mawala and Brock Parker, who's back from a couple of weeks off. So that is a good-looking bench. Oh, look, I think that uh, the coach, Craig Brennan, would be very happy at having all of those players at his disposal this week. And um, as you say, getting that extra week of uh, time off has probably allowed this to happen. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that game. Yeah, so obviously all the updates of those two games you can catch on TCT, as you can with the next game, which will be in the primetime slot at New Era, and it's the Tasha Gale. Um, the Eels coming off a win and a draw in their last two hitouts uh, alongside the game they called Washed Out, obviously. So they've got a bit of momentum. And this is a big game because in a top six format, the Eels are at eight for the moment out of nine teams. But they're playing the team that's in six. And a win here would leapfrog them by virtue of having two and a half wins versus the Sharks, two wins. So a lot to play for for the Eels in the um, Tasha Gale. And to do so, they're looking um, like this with Amina Kanj at fullback. Daniel Keller and Hayden, Hannah McFadden sorry, on the wings. Jacinta Tui and Tamira Liardi in the centres. Uh, in the halves, you've got Lorene Lua Manuve and Catalina Vave. And then the front row, which has been one of the outstanding parts of the team for the Eels, is Ruby John Kennard, uh, Jada Tuevai, and the inspirational captain, Lasalio Cedar Payne. Uh, back row features Talisha Pugh, Summer Terere, and Taimana Kolomaki. 
uh, Colin Marker, sorry, no, no, I, it's an A. Um, on the bench, you've got Christian Hawthorne, Leilani Tua, Eloisa Seve, and Summer Brown, and Lucy Whitehead as the 18th or 19th player in this case, given her jersey is the 19. I, what you mentioned before, Forty, about the uh, positioning of the teams, as as you alluded to, the it's a top six format uh, to, and and that fits in with the allows their final series of the Tasha Gale to uh, synchronise with the Harold Mats and the SG Ball. However, it is only a nine team competition, so although the Eels started off. Uh, poorly in terms of results, by virtue of the back end of this competition, the the way the draw is structured, they're coming up against the teams that they are actually in. Uh, yeah, so uh, their their run home I features this week is battling for a spot. Yeah, yeah Roosters are yeah. fifth place, the Roosters Indigenous Academy, and they're going to have the the rescheduled match against the Cronulla Sharks. So it's fifth and six and a bye. So win win bye, and you've got a very good chance of making the finals. Well, I think win-win by and they make the finals. So, um, and they might even go close to scraping in with win and buy because um, that that buy getting the two points for that buy is actually quite critical in in the context of uh, the positioning of those teams. So, um, the start of the season saw the Eels playing all of the teams that featured in the in the top end of the table. And now they're playing the teams that are in the bottom half of the table. And as I said, they're the ones they're competing with for a final spot. They get the win this week and they can start to feel uh, that they're an extremely good chance of playing finals football. Mm-hmm. And for the Eels team, that is a tremendous boon and it's a, it's a good platform. And, and we're not just talking about for results this year. We're talking about as the Eels look to build uh, their girls' program, it's, it, it'd be a good platform to be able to go into 2022, having made finals in 2021. Absolutely. And um, that'll wrap up the junior rep previews for round eight in that competition, um, which takes us on to Jersey Flag. Now, the flag was meant to be originally part of a triple header at Bank West, but um, given what the turf has gone through between A-League and NRL across the last week um, and that torrential downpour, um, the Flag are the unfortunate uh, uh, victims of a rescheduling, so they'll be out at McCready Park um, up against the Cronulla Sharks. And the flag have named an unchanged lineup from the team that was meant to take on the Canberra Raiders. Um, so it's the the same young team um, that we previewed last week. So just to run you through it, it's Tavita Massima at fullback with Matt Komalafi and Marley Townsend on the wings, Samuel Loizu and Jaden Skinner in the centres, uh, Clayton Falolo and Nick Tilberger in the halves. Atasi James, Kyle Schneider, and Jack Colavati are your front rowers, or front row and hooker rower, with Oliver Clements, Penny Tohey, and Jaden Yates in the back row. On the bench, you've got Ethan LeBlanc, Mark Tepe-Smith, Valence Harris, and David Tui. And um, they're up against the Sharks, who I've, I've got no read on at the moment. Um, the the flag is very much a large unknown for us at TCT, because we've, been, we've seen so little for over 12 months now. We don't really know who a form team is and who the big dogs in the competition are. That's right. And... The interesting thing is, is that if I'm looking at the Eels lineup, I'm seeing players that I'm pretty sure are going to perform quite well. However, the trials have not gone especially well for the team, so <clears throat> they're still they're still an unknown for me as a unit and how they how they're going to perform as a unit coming into this match, and they are at a disadvantage with 
not having played any matches since the trials, and we're now in round three. And I know they're not going to be Robinson Crusoe in terms of uh, match time with all the all those games that were cancelled last week, but to go from a bye in round one into a washout in round two, and then their first match is in round three, it's not an ideal way no. to start in terms of team cohesion. Not at all. So, and this is the game that we're not sure if we can get out the cover because the the last game in um at New Era is obviously the Tash girls we talked about, and that kicked off at uh, did I say twelve o'clock or twelve thirty? I think it's twelve thirty. Twelve thirty, and the kickoff here is two thirty, if I'm not mistaken. So technically, there is time to get there, but my um as you, those that have been following my live blogs would realize my laptop battery is playing up a little bit at the moment. So um, I'm at a sort of a a very skinny set of logistics for battery management. So we have to figure out what we can do there. And at the very worst, we'll get um, some sort of report up for you guys by way of our contacts at the club. So that is the the worst case scenario there. Well, look, it's a very tight timeline because in the, in the best case scenario, uh, you'll probably be getting, we'll probably be getting away from new era, um, maybe just around about that two o'clock mark. Yeah, and flying flying and, over the Guildford and yeah, so Yeah. And, and Guildford is in a direct line between um Cabramatta and, and Parramatta to an extent. Um however the um sometimes getting out of Cabramatta, Cabramatta Road, it gets a little bit uh, a little bit busy up there. Like you literally we would literally be in a situation where we're driving into the ground at at Guildford where it's kicking off. And then we've got to think about the, um, then the logistics of getting from Guildford to Bank West being set up, ready to cover the, the New South Wales cup. So um, yeah, that's probably the game that's in the firing line. Of, yeah. Of, unfortunately, because we, we do love up. a Jersey flag game at TCT, but it's the unfortunate victim of a, an understandable rescheduling. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of the New South Wales cup and it's a tough week for Ryan Carr, mate. Um, looking at this team list, as as with the flag, it's very similar to what we saw for the game that was meant to take place last week, but there's only 15 players named. Um, starting with the number one, you've got Sean Russell, uh, Solomon Naiduki, and Hayes Dunster on the wings, with Will Penasini and Tim Laffey as that contrast between the uh, prodigious young talent and the seasoned NRL vet there in the centres. Um, in the halves, Jordan Rankin will captain the team alongside Jacob Arthur at, um, at halfback. Uh, front row reads is David Hollis, Joey Lusick, and Makahesi Makatoa, who shifts from lock forward to prop. Um, he actually uh, swaps jerseys of Kurt Dillon. Well, no, to, to, to tell you, not a fib. Kurt Dillon was number eight last week, so he, he swaps positions but not jerseys. Um, in the back row, the two big winners from the uh, the team that's been uh, weakened by NRL co-ops is Eli Elzikaham and Shabel Tasapali, who will start on the edges from being uh, bench and 18th man. And on the bench, the half the bench that we've got named is Nathaniel Roach and... Uh, Alala Toa Mata'afa, with two TBAs in 16 and 17. Oh, the TBA twins making an appearance. Yeah, the, the famed TBA twins. So, yeah, um, tough week for Ryan Carr, mate. It's never good to have to name two TBAs. Little, like, one TBA is a rough time, two is just awful. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage this, whether they have some um, guys in, in sort of processing that are with the team but not officially registered yet. If they find guys off the street that just fill jerseys, if they look to the um, jersey flag potentially for guys like Atasi James, who trained with the full-time squad and might be able to be called up to play uh, Cup. I'm not really sure how they, they, they process this because it's, it's not I've a got, situation. I, I do have an exclusive. Oh, um, I, took, I took a call from Ryan Carr last night and uh, I'm – getting the boots ready 
right now, mate. There we go. So, there we go. so the Eels are beefing up their ruck rotation with 60s, so he'll come on and, and, and rotate with Dave Hollis, no doubt. Um, well, mate, I'm, I'm familiar with all the plays, having watched training. That's true. And, that's uh, true. So, I, you know, what can I that's, say? That's I like knew a, my time would come. And that sounds like a Jake Pavlovich type kind of role, mate. You're going to be in the middle, but helping all the um, backline maneuvers. Oh, look, you know, it's I do what I can, mate. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, tough sledding for Ryan Carr. Be very interesting to see how they fill the uh, gap here because they're up against the uh, Newtown Jets, who are aligned with the Cronulla Sharks, if I'm not mistaken given that this is a doubleheader at Bank West, so you'd have to think that the the two teams are in alignment there. Um, kickoff is at 5.10pm. Updates will be on TCT. This game is not live-streamed because it obviously com, uh, conflicts with the 5.30 NRL game that's uh, broadcast on Fox. So, yeah, follow this game on TCT. Um, and this is, once again, we're not really sure what to expect. Um, the Eels were very good against the St. George Laura Dragons in the first trial of the, the preseason, um, but then had a, a pretty ordinary day out against the Penrith Panthers a week later. And they've been now three weeks removed from that with uh, the week off before the season starts. And then you had the bye and the game postponed. So uh, we don't really know what to expect on uh, 5 o'clock 10 or 5.10 kick kickoff. Well, I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that I'm interested in. I'm obviously interested in how the younger players who've spent the preseason with the NRL squad, how they perform. Um, so we're talking about the likes of Sean Russell and, and uh, Jake Arthur. Um, I'm also interested in Charbel Tassipali, who uh, was my selection as the most improved from the Eels NRL preseason. And I thought he was quite unlucky to be... Uh, named as a bench player uh, in the previous weeks, whereas um, he's he gets a start this week. He's um, yeah, a really really good preseason. He um, he came uh, was coming off a horrible hip injury, and uh, I think he's he's someone to look out for this uh, during this season, just to to keep monitoring how he goes because he's a, a back rower. And uh, even at training, he can fill in at centre and, and has done quite an ad admirable job there. Um, so, yeah, young players like him, I'm interested in watching. And just to see that continued development of uh, the likes of um, of uh, Sean Russell and Jake Arthur, um, Solomone Naiduki as well. Um, so it's a, <clears throat> yeah, a, there is a bit to watch. And, of course, um, Dave Hollis, who continues his... Uh, path towards the NRL. He, he's one to keep an eye on. But in terms of the, the team as a unit, yeah. How are they going to perform? Yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be fun and, and perhaps frustrating at times to find out, as with the flag, because this is a, a team that we've got a very uh, low beat on because of the way the preseason played out. And um, given that they're now three weeks or two weeks into their season and haven't played a game. So, um, yeah, join us on TCT with the live updates to see how the team travels against the Newtown Jets. And that brings us up to our main event. But before we get to that, a um, bit of re-signing news for the Eels this week, mate. What do you got? Well, we've got Mike Acevo, who has extended for two years. Now, the early talk about that was that it was going to be a one-year extension with a one-year option. But uh, all the reports are that it's a, a two-year extension, a straight two years. Yeah, that no, added no to club or player options, just an outright two-year extension. So... He'll play out the remainder of his contract under 2021, and he's here for the 2022 and 2023 seasons. Yeah, so it's it's good to start locking in uh, players that 
we do want to keep at the club and the more certainty that we have around those players that are going to be there, uh, the easier it is then to start planning in terms of recruiting for next year. And I know it's strange to be talking about the importance of planning and recruitment when we're only at round three in the NRL Premiership. That's the nature of the beast, mate. The NRL is a juggernaut that never stops. Mate, I've been... I get so many messages uh, sent to me asking me about where things stand with Madison and with Nathan Brown. And my answer, and, and before that, it was about SIBO as well. And my answers pretty much changed over the years because I'm now at the point where there's processes that have to, we have to go through. And we know that there is a game that gets played out. The managers are going to do their best to get the the best possible deal that they can for their client, whether it be the length of the contract, the the uh, dollar amount, whether there's any bonuses or yeah, incentives, incentives for rep selection, et cetera, et cetera. And on the and flip that's side, their, that's their job. And that's on the flip side, job. clubs want to try and squeeze the players and the managers to get as much for their cap as possible. It's yeah. it's a an a, I won't say beautiful. It's probably the opposite. It's an ugly dance at times because it gets played out in the media. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, both sides air dirty laundry and whatnot. But, you know, th- there is a dance to this that it can be frustrating for fans, but the process is the process. And I, what I will go on record as saying is I, I, I believe that these players, any of the players that are off contract for the Eels, they're not looking to go elsewhere. That's, that is far from any... Um, first option that they've got. So the way that I look at it is if the player wants to stay and if the club are keen to keep them and both parties are reasonably close to each other in terms of uh, the value that they place on the contract, it'll get done. Yes, sir. And And if the player moves on because of um, maybe they valued themselves higher than what the club does, well, so be it. They they've got a limited career. If they can get if they can get much more coin elsewhere, then good luck to them. And by the same token, our club has been guilty of overpaying contracts in the past, and it it's certainly not a feature of more recent times. But we we do only have to go back about five or six years where there was some legacy contracts that were just killing the club. Yeah. Oh yeah, just and. And the flow on the effect that overpaying uh, certain players can have on the rest of the squad, it, it, it creates a real imbalance. Now, let's look at you look at Manly as an example of that, where they've got about four or five players that eat up a huge chunk of their cap, and you've got the imbalance then that's in the rest of their squad. Now, that's not disrespecting the rest of their squad, but it's just saying that their depth is minimal because they are paying so much to their marquee players. They've, they've got a slew of marquee players, but does it help them in the, in the greater scheme of things? Exactly. I think you, have, you, have, you need a strong, balanced team. And at the moment, I just feel that Parramatta's as close to being in an ideal balance in terms of where the, where the contracts and the playing talent sit the and size of the contracts and the relative playing talent. So I, I suppose we should touch on this very quickly before we get into the NRL preview, but uh, you're talking about overpays. Two players that the Eels have been officially linked to in the media, and they're not linked to many players now these days because of how tight-knit the uh, 
the recruitment and retention committee has been. But uh, they were linked to both uh, Katoni Staggs and Brandon Piacura, uh, both of whom are on the, the uh, Brisbane, uh, I was about to say the Brisbane Storm, the, the Brisbane Broncos payroll. Um, but in light of recent uh, uh, events, it's probably safe to say that they're probably outside of Parramatta's uh, uh, willingness to pay now, given that the Broncos have allegedly offered uh, the un, the unproven Piacura $1.2 million over three years. And Katoni Staggs is evidently looking for in excess of $800,000 uh, on a per-year basis. Yeah, it's... Both players have been on the radar at Parramatta. There's no... There's no disputing that, and uh, Pia Cura. Well, we were we were one of the favoured clubs to secure his contract, and for good reason that um, he was quite keen to come to the club. However, once you start talking about those sorts of dollars for an unproven player, there's there's a big risk there. Now, some clubs will take a punt there. Um, the Roosters have done that in the past. They forked out big money for uh, players who are high on promise um, but low on experience and there's been occasions where it's where it has worked beautifully and it may work beautifully say for example with Joseph Suwali um, but for it, every Suwali there's a Jaden Nicarima who that's know, was on very big dollars respective to his NRL experience and completely flamed out yeah and uh, and in the past, um, they paid big money for Josh Curran yep. and for him from the Parramatta Reels junior system. And Josh is forging his own career at the uh, Warriors at the moment. But he was, um, he was let, like, they let him go. They let him go. That's right. So uh, they wanted a, obviously wanted a quicker return on their big investment there. And uh, yeah, they released him. So he's now forging his career at the Warriors and it's, and it's, going ahead, at, I suppose, at a rate that a lot of young players would probably be reasonably happy with because he's getting his appearances in, in the top grade from time to time, but they, they still haven't rushed him either. So, um, yeah, it was a big, it, that was big money that was paid for him. And, um, yeah, so I 1.2 million for a, a player that's yet to play senior football. Gee, that's, that's a lot of coin. Yeah, and the, the Broncos did something similar with uh, Payne Haas when they offered him his uh, six-year, $3 million deal uh, when he was, I think, three games into his NRL career. And in terms of football talent, it certainly looked to have been a good deal for the Broncos. But you know, now you've got, you know, it, it's been revealed that he's very much a loose cannon off the field. So, you know, there, there are potential consequences that you don't even see from just a form that can play into this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Um, I, I, I think once you start talking about that that big money, it's gee, it's tempting for the for the young players, but by the same token, it adds some pressure to them to perform immediately. Yeah, immediately. And, and for the Eels, it leaves them with a healthy war chest, but they've got a bit of housekeeping to do still. Um, you know, that we talk about Nathan Brown and Ryan Madison, but there's other players beyond that that need to be re-signed. They've got a wave of young kids coming through too that they're going to need to figure how they uh, you know fit into their long term plans, and then they'll be active in the play market after that. So. And most immediately, uh, we have effectively only 27 players on the roster with uh, the with uh, Jenko being included in the 28. So um, I think it's it's scenarios like this that lead to the uh, TBAs, yeah, in the in the Canterbury yeah. Cup. And um, 
it, we'll, we'll see how this plays out because there are a few clubs that have uh, chosen a, a similar path with only announcing the 28 player squads. Given that the and deadline a, now extends to August 1 for mid-season transfers, so there's probably going to be a flurry of activity further down the track across the entire NRL. Yeah. All right, let's get on to the main event on Saturday night. The Eels occupying primetime slot on Foxtel at 7.35 p.m. Was it always 7.35 p.m. kickoff? I would have sworn it was 7.30. Uh, kickoffs keep getting pushed back every year, I don't understand. All right, but uh, enough of my old man grumblings despite being in my 30s. Um, let's get on to the opposition team list. Uh, Will Kennedy is fullback for the Cronulla Sharks with Sione Katoa and Ronaldo Molotalo on the wings. Josh Dugan and Connor Tracy, who gets the the bump up from the bench to uh, centre uh, for the Cronulla Sharks. In the halves, you've got Matt Moylan and Chad Townsend. Uh, Braden Hamill-Newelli, Blake Braley and Aaron Woods are their front row, alongside Britton Nakora. Their captain, Wade Graham and Toby Rudolph in the back row. On the bench, you've got Teague or Tag Wilton. Uh, apologies, uh, Mr. Wilton, if I got that wrong. Aidan Tolman, Jack Williams and the Greek freak, Billy Magoulos. And on the extended bench, uh, Mawani Harodi, Nene McDonald, Andrew Fafita, and Braden Trindle. Uh, one-time uh, Parramatta Eel, John Morris, their coach. Uh, for the Eels, uh, not too many changes, just the stuff enforced by injuries to Blake Ferguson and Ryan Madison. Quentin Gufferson is the captain and fullback. Uh, on the wings, you've got Micah Sivo and Blake Ferguson. Tom, Tom Opachik and Murata Niakori are in the centres. Dylan Brown, Mitchell Moses are your 5'8 and halfback, respectively. Front row reads is Reagan Campbell-Gillard, Reed Marnie and Junior Polo. Sean Lane is I Papali'i, who gets promoted from the bench to edge back row. And Nathan Brown are the back rowers. On the bench, Oregon Kafusi holds down the uh, middle as the only recognised prop forward on the bench. And he's joined on the bench alongside Keegan Hipgrave, Will Smith and Ray Stone, who makes his return from injury, as we talked about earlier in the podcast. Extended bench is Jordan Rankin, Hayes Dunster, Big David Hollis and Joey Lusick. Brad Arthur is the coach. Well, mate, it's uh, an interesting squad for the Sharks. I think they've performed better in the first two rounds than I thought they were going to. They were actually my selection for Wooden Spoon coming into this season. But the reason that they were my selection was for all the rubbish that's going on around John Morris. Yeah, all the speculation, I, hey, he's not going to get an extension. They're going to bring back Flanagan or look externally. That, that can be very distracting to a club, as we've seen with the Eels in the past. Look, I can't believe that any club that has designs on performing well in a season would even allow that level of speculation to occur. And I, and I think that speculation's there, and this is just my opinion, because they are genuinely looking at other options other than John Morris. And I think that, I think the bloke's done a damn good job with the Sharks, with the, the squad that he's had, and with the distractions that have gone on in the background, the fact that they don't have a home ground at the moment, that's that's got to be factored There's, into it. There is well. a lot of parallels to uh, early Brad Arthur era Eels and the Cronulla Sharks at the moment. A coach that's copying a lot of uh, board-level speculation, having to play outside of their traditional home ground because of a redevelopment. Um, you know, a legacy roster from a like, you know, former administration and coach that you know isn't built in any sort of optimal way. So, yeah, Morris is dealing with a pretty tough deal at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Now, I'm I'm not going to revise my spoon tip at the moment because I think if this speculation continues, that it's going to have some sort of impact down the track. But um, I have to say that I've been impressed with 
their grit and determination that they've played with. They should have beaten the Raiders, except for the obviously the goal kicking. But they deserve the win against the Raiders. They should be two and zero at this point in the season, and um, they will not be in any way easy beats for the Eels because they will play a brand of football which will take it um, take it up to Parramatta. They'll they'll play a very powerful forward game, and uh, yeah, if we give them a sniff, mate, they they're just as likely to take it. Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, Bernie alluded to it, we spoke about it in the past. The Sharks tend to play the Eels very close. And fortunately, uh, in recent times, the Eels have been on the, the winning side of the column. But the games have always been gritty and, and to an extent, dour. Um, there hasn't been fast, open football. Last year was because of conditions. Um, we played out at Cogra, if I'm not mistaken, and it was very wet. Um, yeah. And we managed to grind out a, a tough win. Um, and that was during the midst of Bo Ferguson and Sivo's big-time struggles. Um, so... Yeah, and, and beyond that, the, there's been some uh, very torrid encounters between the two clubs. So this is a chance for the Eels to separate themselves from some of that recent history. But in saying that, you've got to expect the Sharks to come out and, and play a very tough game against us. Yeah, look, I I expect nothing different. I, I will be uh, tipping a, a close encounter. I think that the best thing for Parramatta to do is to, as Bernie suggested, Keep doing the basics, and if if we're able to grind out uh, a win of six points or less, I'll be just as happy as if they come out there and and put a lot of points on the board. In fact, um, I, I I have no it, it, look. It's obviously it's it's a lot more relaxing watching a big win out there. But my concerns with with Parramatta has has been how they respond reply after big wins or, or their the attitude over the years that they seem to have got after a big win where they get ahead of themselves. I think where we are playing the sort of football that we need to play at this time of the season, which is good um, basics with the with the football, high completion rate, good kicking game, good kick chase, all those sorts of things. That's what I want to see right now. And if that delivers a six-point win, if it delivers a 12-point win, whatever the case may be, I just want to see that type of football. That's a good call, mate. Now, one thing I did want to touch on before we wrap up a, a rather big episode of the tip sheet um, is that it's a very small bench for the Eels, and that's by virtue of pretty much having only those players available because you've got you know four guys in the injury ward, plus, you, as you mentioned before, there's only 27 players on the roster. Um, the Eels are you know, on struggle street at the moment with um, some of their injuries. Um, how do we handle our middle rotation? Because we know that Reagan Campbell-Gillard and Junior Paul are capable of going 60-plus in terms of playing minutes. Um, and you've got guys like Lane and Papali'i who can easily switch from edge to the middle rotation when someone else subs onto their spot. Um, what are we looking for Brett Arthur to do? Oregon is the only really uh, primary middle on the bench. Keegan Hipgrave can play in the middle, but he's a, a tweener as a forward. Um, and Ray Stone and Will Smith are both guys that have played, well, Will only just recently, but Ray... Um, as a career, can be played in the middle, but they're on the smaller side. How are the Eels going to handle the Sharks and their big pack? Well, I suppose that the rotation might be uh, where, as you suggested, we've got two back rowers who could just as effectively play in the middle in in Lane and Papali'i. Now, Papali'i has already proven that he can play long minutes when he comes on because his time off the bench has actually been... Uh, quite extended. Start, essentially, start of minutes. He's been 57 minutes or thereabouts in both games, I think. Yeah, 
So I would think that um, there'll be a rotation around that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, a, again, a case of um, will Smith play shorter minutes, depending on how the game evolves. Um, Ray Stone doesn't have any match fitness behind him. He was due to come back uh, in the reserve grade game last week. They weren't going to rush him into first grade, and uh, he didn't get that time on the field last week. How much time he gets uh, out in the middle, again, it might be a case of uh, what Brad Arthur has been known to do, which is he rotates mostly between uh, around 15 players and keeps uh, the other two uh, on almost on standby with and plays them in shorter minutes. Now, there's been a little bit of criticism for that, but I think if you're playing a game where you know what your strengths are and what you need to do in the, your use of your players to get the win, I say, you know, go with what your what your plan is around there. And and look, I think there's sometimes as well where the game's evolving in such a way that he doesn't want to take a player off the field that's performing well. I mean, and and why not? I mean, in in I know it's a different game to years gone by, but I I can tell you there'd be plenty of Balmain supporters who wish Warren Ryan hadn't removed uh, Sirenen and Blocker Roach true, true. in the grand final. Yep. Um, you know, so, sometimes you, um, going well, we, we, we speak about this all the time. Rugby league is a simple game, isn't it? You know, just get your best players on the field, and that's that's it. And if you and the really the time to start replacing players is when it looks like their contribution isn't as strong, whether it be through fatigue, you know, if they need a rest, and the the coach can pick up some of the things that we don't pick up. The coach, or, or I should say, the coaches, they'll they start to see whether players aren't capable of making those effort-on-effort effort plays. We, as, as spectators, we tend to watch where the ball's going. They are also yeah, he, he, keeping he, he, their he, eyes on all the off-the-ball You get stuff. sucked into following the ball because that's what you're there for. You're watching the ball because that's where the action is. But there is so much stuff that happens off the ball in terms of offense and defensive structures and, and effort-on-effort effort stuff. So, yeah, as coaches, they obviously see a lot more. Um, and the good news now, as I move on, is that uh, after a very long, long period of sustained rain, um, Friday has some rain expected to fall, but Saturday out at Parramatta is billed as slightly overcast and a very low chance of precipitation. So we're looking at a relatively dry track, hopefully no uh, torrential downpouring like we saw uh, last Thursday night. And and that sort of leads me to the, the point that um, the 10,500 people that got out there on Thursday night um, deserve full credit for you know the most testing conditions you're probably going to get in a while for attendance. But you want to see a, a packed um, full house in round three. You want to see the yeah. turn out in big numbers and, and get behind their teams. They look to launch a, a huge sortie early in the 2021 campaign. And those people who haven't been to Bank West, uh, goes without saying, You're doing make yourself sure a disservice. you get out there. Because you, you are doing yourself a legitimate disservice as a rugby league fan if you, have, if you have not attended a game at Bank West. Yeah, and last week, with only 10,000 people there. It was one of the best atmospheres that it was I've bumping. been in. Yeah. Um, talking to people uh, post-game uh, post during the week and um, how much they heard the crowd through the uh, the sideline mics, they were shocked. It was like they, they couldn't believe that it was a crowd of 10,500 because they were parochial and they were vocal. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, around, around where we were, the noise that was being generated, especially as we were coming into the – back half of the game it was 
uh, it, it was phenomenal. And uh, I know all of us made plenty of noise when the uh, when Sivo scored. Sivo. The, you know, just the the noise that went up in the stadium was just phenomenal. Um, so yeah, encourage everyone to get out there, um, and uh, we'll we'll also encourage people to uh, get to the entertainment at Paraleagues this week. It doesn't include us, but uh, Paraleagues is the home of the no, year. So no on call sure performance from the tip sheet live at Paraleagues, but um, we'll probably feature later in the year at some point. Yeah. Oh, look, we're. We are planning on making future appearances down there, so we're we're, we're at the stage of working out some uh, some more dates with the club and uh, people who are listeners to the podcast would like to come down and and see us in person. Um, yeah, we're we're looking forward to doing more live events throughout the year. And just while we're on that, in terms of the news from this past week, we had the results of the Parramatta Leagues Club election and the. Uh, current uh, president of the uh, Leagues Club, Greg Monaghan, and fellow director uh, Sue Coleman were returned in uh, the as a result of the election. So uh, they retained their places on the board. Our uh, congratulations to them and our, the thanks to the others who stood uh, for election. It's the, it was the first of the triennial elections yep. under the new constitution. Um, it was uh, the AGM was uh, quite informative. Um, it was uh, probably, I think it was one of the best AGMs that I went to in terms of the information that was presented, the um, the vibe in the room, which was very positive. And um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's onwards and upwards uh, for the uh, the leagues club board. Thank you especially to everyone who did take the time to vote that that was all available with uh, postal votes uh, as well as the electronic votes. If you didn't receive your electronic notification this time round, please make sure that you get in touch with the club, register an email address so that you are able to vote electronically next time. It is the simplest process. You would not believe, if you didn't vote that way, you would not believe how simple it is. And of course, the more people that uh, vote in those elections, the greater that um, uh, the democracy in the process is able to take place. That's it, mate. That's a very neat place to wrap up another episode of the tip sheet. Um, so you can catch us, like I said earlier, uh, live blocking the junior reps and the New South Wales Cup. So drop by thecumberlandfro.com for all that action. Otherwise, enjoy the game on Saturday night, and we'll catch you guys next week. See you later.